Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This week, it's back to the guerrilla war, but there are challenges for both sides, not least being the weather. This had a major impact on Boer General Christian de Wett in particular, because a drought through November 1900 meant there was no easy way for him to move into the Cape Colony. Nature seemed to conspire against him, as you'll see, because when it eventually rained, that also proved to be a problem. Because he was a deeply religious man, he regarded this all as a sign from above that invading the Cape might not be such a good idea after all. There was virtually no grazing through November and into the first week of December, at least in the southern Free State. The horses were growing weaker by the day. If they didn't recover, they would have to be replaced or his venture was doomed. As de Wett and his commando moved south, they skirmished on a daily basis with English and Australian units in the area. Near Batuli, de Wett met up with General Piet Fourie and Captain Skippers. He could no longer keep the prisoners he'd taken at de Wettstorp and set more than 60 black ox wagon drivers free. Just to make sure they would no longer work for the British, he handed each a written pass to enter Basutoland, modern-day Lesotho. This precursor to the pass system, which became so hated in South Africa, was working well for both British and Boer during this war. It would become the standard way to manage black South African migrancy in the future, although at this point both black and white had to carry passes in order to travel in the country at war. Close to Carmel, de Wett's commando bumped into an English column making for Smithfield and he ordered an attack. But the English were dug in too well and both sides used the hastening dusk to rest and planned their attacks for the following day. On the morrow, de Wett wrote, early in the morning, the fight began afresh. The exchange of fire went on all day and in the afternoon General Charles Knox arrived with reinforcements and de Wett retired. The Boer general had experienced a personal loss at the same time that was weighing heavily on his mind. And he wrote, It was here that I sustained a loss upon my staff, my nephew, Johannes Jakubus de Wett. It was sad to think that I should never see again Johannes so brave and cheerful as he had always been. His death was a great shock to me. He would also have to tell his sister that her son had been killed. General Herzog and his men then joined de Wett's commander. It was decided that Herzog should move quickly into the Cape between Norfalspont and Hopetown Railway, and that de Wett should do the same between the railway bridges at Bethuli and Alliwell North. This two-pronged attack on the Cape envisaged de Wett operating in the Midlands and to the east, while Herzog would concentrate on the northwest. This is an area of South Africa called the Klein Karoo, the small Karoo, its semi-desert parched landscape achingly beautiful but deadly if you caught without water. The irony is the drought then broke at precisely this point, raining all through the day and the following evening. The next morning it was still raining when the commandos set off, heading towards the Caledon River crossing, and de Wett was suddenly aware of the paradox. In the midst of concerns about watering his horses, the rains had caused the river to flood, and now they were in danger of drowning. I can assure you, that it rained so hard while we were fording the Caledon that, as the Boers say, it was enough to kill the big devils and cut off the legs of the little ones, said de Wett sardonically. By nightfall, the commando had ridden hard through the rain and arrived at the mighty Orange River, the longest in South Africa, and one which normally meanders quietly from the northeast to the west of the country, emptying into the Atlantic Ocean. But as the sun set, 
and the vet's men arrived at this great river, they were in for a surprise. That evening we reached the Orange River at a point some three miles to the north of Undalström, but alas, what a sight met our eyes. The river was quite impassable owing to the floods, and in addition, the ford was held by English troops stationed on the south bank. The Orange River floodplain is vast. A river that is a few hundred meters wide at a point can grow to become more than two kilometers wide. Worse, this small station had already sent word across the flooding river to Aliwal North behind Devet that a large commando had been spotted. For a dry country, this moment was ironic. Devet could not cross the Orange due to flooding, but he couldn't return along his route and recross the Caledon either. It was now also too high due to the rains and the British held all the bridges. There was now only one option, to head northeast towards Basutaland and to use the neutral territory in order to cross into the Cape. But De Vett was worried about that. We did not wish to cross its borders. We were on good terms with the Basutus, and we could not afford to make enemies of them. Surely we had enough enemies already. To make the best of a bad job, as De Vett explained, he sent Captain Skippers and 300 men to ride in the direction of Ruval along the Orange River with orders that as soon as the waters receded, they were to cross it into the Cape Colony without delay. The vet, though, was in a bit of a pickle. The English were so fond of us that they would surely be paying us a visit, he said dryly. He needed to maintain the initiative and move. Riding with him still was the Free State President Stain, so he had even more of a responsibility, and it weighed heavily. My dear old friend, General Charles Knox, Debit wrote darkly in his book Three Years' War, had the best of the argument, for the river was unfordable. I knew that the Orange and Caledon rivers sometimes remained unfordable for weeks together. How could I then escape? Oh, the English had caught me at last. In fact, they had cornered me to use one of their own favorite expressions. The constant movement had exhausted his horses, and they slowly made their way back to the Caledon to see if the small bridge at Komisi Drift was occupied by the British. The horses were also feeding on the young grass, which was not enough to sustain them, while the going through the mud was tough, tiring them still further. So he was encircled once more. In a last gasp attempt at fleeing, De Vett sent one of his scouts to find a possible crossing point. And they did, because the rains had ceased, and miraculously the Caledon flood was receding. On the 8th of December, his commander arrived at Zeevonfontein Ford, where he crossed during the night. While De Vett's plan was simple, return to De Vettstorp area, his hometown, replenish the horses, then march back on the Cape once more. The British were alert to this strategy. General Knox was moving with a large force from the south, trying to push De Vett towards Bloemfontein, moving him like game towards a game fence. One advantage, thought De Witt, was that he was drawing the British further away from Captain Skippers, and the road behind the advancing khaki columns would be open to the south. Little did he know this was not the case, and in fact, Captain Skippers had himself run into a British column while resting his horses at Zastron. Brabant's horse unit was made up of colonials fighting for the British, and it had been cut to pieces in the ensuing firefight. Sixty English soldiers were wounded or captured, while the survivors made a run for the town of Alwell North. They then alerted the garrison, and Skipper's mission was over before it started. 
De Wet by now had made it as far as Wilgeboom Spreit on the road to De Wet's Dorp, but General Knox guessed he was heading back to his old haunt and sent a unit ahead to stop the Boer general. De Wet then turned and headed back south again, but was warned that an even larger English column awaited him near the town of Edinburgh. This commander was being hounded, and the constant movement was unsustainable. Overnight they rode 20 miles, leaving their English trackers way behind but also straining both animals and men. However, this zigzagging had once again brought him a few days' peace, and his men awaited further orders on the 8th of December. We need to skip closer to Johannesburg though, where General Jan Smuts was having slightly better luck. He was working with General Kurs de la Rey, and a golden opportunity arose for which these two leaders had been waiting. For three months, ever since British General Clements had stormed up the Moot or the valley in the Michalisberg mountain range, the Boers had been on the defensive. Clements was adept at fighting and moving campaign, but everyone has a bad day. His would duly arrive on the morning of the 3rd of December. General Smuts had borne the brunt of Clements' campaign. Smuts wore two hats as a member of President Paul Kruger's old government, he was still state attorney, and the new assistant commandant general. This made him De La Rey's right-hand man. Smuts was therefore administrating while he was also making war. He was tasked with revitalizing the commandos in the Western Transvaal, which was both taxing and quite brutal. He had to appoint new leaders while expelling Boers whose loyalty was suspect, which included condemning and even executing those found guilty of treason. His legal training and cool brain meant he handled these odious tasks with aplomb. But in the matter of tactical actions as a guerrilla leader, he was less adept. The seemingly endless series of defeats the Boers had suffered at the hands of Clements had led to retreat after retreat, and Smuts was growing tired of the constant harassment. So it was with great joy that in early December 1900, the British grew careless and presented him with an opportunity. The guerrillas had lain low for a few weeks, which lulled the garrisons into a false sense of security. On the 2nd of December, Smuts's scouts informed him that a large but poorly defended ox wagon convoy was heading west from Pretoria to Rustenburg along a road that runs north of the Michalisberg Valley. Waiting for the convoy in Rustenburg was Colonel Broadwood. At dawn, on the morning of the 3rd of December, Smuts and Delaray pounced on the convoy as it passed small copies near Buffel's Hook. While some of the support troops managed to escape, Smuts was well pleased with his booty. He seized 118 wagons loaded with goods, as well as 44 prisoners. The British lost 64 men in the attack. It was a short, sharp encounter. The Boers kept 15 wagons of boots and clothing, then set fire to the rest. Broadwood would have no champagne for Christmas. As we'll hear next week, however, General Clements was in for a much bigger shock a little later, as he bivouacked at a splendid waterfall in the Michalisberg Mountains. And one of the Boers in that attack would be Danais Reitz, who, as you will remember, had been fighting in the eastern and northern Transvaal with his brothers for the last six months. He had joined the Boer army in October 1899 and began his campaign in Natal. Now he's in the northern Transvaal. Things were going to get very busy for our young narrator, who published two great books after the Anglo-Boer War. By December 1900, he'd been kicking his heels north of Pretoria, waiting for word to move, and word finally came in the first week. 
His brother, Yobe, though, had decided he wanted to become a creosote gunner, one of a few still left. He surprised the nace one morning and announced he was leaving to become an artilleryman. The other brothers were upset and attempted to change Yobe's mind, but he was having none of it. The nace takes up the story. He had always wished to be an artilleryman, and his obstinacy defeated our arguments. He rode away that same afternoon, and I have not seen him since, for he was captured and sent to Bermuda, where he still is. Danais and his brothers remained to fight alongside General Bayers. Now the general split his force. He left 300 men and guns to oppose the British, who were marching into the northern Transvaal, and then he in turn marched off with the rest of the commander, around 800 men in total. His purpose was to make south over the Michalisburg to the Haarfeldt beyond, from where he planned to carry out the guerrilla campaign. Danais and his brothers rode with General Bayers, and the first day's trek brought them to a local chief's land. He was known as Kurs Mawakhali. The chief welcomed the Boers, and at sunset they sat on the top of a large mountain, looking out across a valley 24 kilometers wide towards the Michalisburg in the distance. That night, the 800-strong commander rode across the valley, and at daybreak were at the foot of a pass known as the Old Wagon Road. It was here they came across evidence that Kurs de la Rey and Jansmatz had indeed been busy, for they found a burning convoy of more than 60 supply wagons. That was Broadwood's supplies that were burning, as we've heard. Great said, We looked on this as a good omen after the unbroken run of ill luck that had dogged us for so long, for it showed that General Buter's reorganization was beginning to take effect. The next attack on General Clements would be another good omen. Remember too, we've been following the Australians, New Zealanders and Canadians who've been busy east of Pretoria. But by the beginning of the second week of December 1900, the main Canadian units had made the long journey back to Cape Town in order to be shipped back home. These men had been fighting on the felt for almost a year and were, let's say, deprived. Carmen Miller in his book Painting the Map Red, Canada and the South African War, published in 1993, describes what happened. The Canadian mounted rifles had fought hard, and by November there were only three officers and 83 men left out of a force of 381 that had arrived in South Africa. This kind of attrition rate has a terrible effect on soldiers. Three quarters of the men were casualties. The survivors bundled onto a train, then suddenly they're in Cape Town, surrounded by apparent civilization, with things like women and bars. What could go wrong? Discipline had never been the mounted rifles' strong point, especially Evans' mounted rifles, for all their courage and daring do, regardless of their character, training or experience, for them the war was over and they had survived. High-spirited and impatient to reclaim the amenities of civil life, they were in no mood to tolerate restraint. But when three different units from three different countries arrived in Cape Town at about the same time on 11 December, all hell broke loose. The Canadians, you see, decided they'd leave their barracks and march into Cape Town for a little R&R, and basically pushed their officers and military police aside. The Australians, always up for a little R&R themselves, decided to join the Canadians. So did the New Zealanders. This led to 1,000 slightly drunk men marching from Maitland Barracks into Cape Town's CBD, a journey of 7 kilometres. One group hijacked a horse and cab, and a dozen men climbed aboard as the skittish beast galloped off, bumping other carriages aside. 
The men headed straight for the bar on Adderley Street, but management there said they were told not to sell alcohol to the troops. So the Canadians and Australians took the booze anyway, and then shot the bar up in Wild West fashion. Revolver rounds shattered the chandeliers. Men tried to shoot their monograms or initials into the big plate glass mirror, while others liberated crates of whiskey and handed bottles around. Then the mob, after drinking that bar dry, moved down Adderley Street to the Grand Hotel. The manager of the Grand summed up the situation quickly. He said he couldn't sell the men liquor, but he decided to donate the alcohol anyway. His bar was left intact, and after satisfying themselves, the Canadians handed around their felt hats for a collection, reportedly each full of golden sovereigns. The military police were hopelessly outnumbered and stood watching. The Australians then began to search the town for what they called the Dutch newspaper and wanted to settle a score with the editor and journalists there. This was far more serious. A lynching was likely. This is where this true tale becomes even more interesting. The Cape Town authorities called on the Cape Mounted Rifles, who were mostly black or what in South Africa is known as coloured soldiers. They began to go to work on the Canadians and the Australians. The eyewitness said, 30 Cape Mounted Rifles formed a line and drew their swords, then chose the most solid-looking body of rioters and advanced at a walk, broke into a trot and finally a gallop. They used the flats and backs of their swords and cracked many heads. This ended the drunken frenzy. The mob dispersed, and the soldiers found their way back to Maitland, carrying their casualties. The next day, nursing black eyes and cracked heads, the official departure from Cape Town for the Canadians and Australians went off without a hitch, with Cape Town citizens cheering them enthusiastically as they marched through the street down to the harbour, apparently the previous day forgotten. Of these, 830 men headed back to Canada on board a vessel which took 27 days to make the Atlantic crossing. The men aboard were sombre, their dark moods broken at times by their menagerie of pets, including parrots, mongooses, monkeys and even baboons. It is not known how these pets felt disembarking in Halifax in the middle of a Canadian winter. So we'll leave these carousing and then somber Canadians and next week hear how Delaray and Smuts deal General Clements a blow in the Michalisberg. Please rate the podcast on iTunes and if you have any comments, please send me a message through the website abwarpodcast.com. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs> Een zonder gedaan langs die moeier vierste val, het zee voor oorlogsdagen bleef. O breng mij terug naar jouw transval, daar waar mij saar